0: Wonderful. Uh, please uh, grab your seats. Thank you, band, for playing. Uh, it's great to have Han back with us. He'll be looking after the church over Christmas, which is... I'm joking. Uh, Han, it's really, really great. Really, really great to have you with us. It's great to see you. And welcome back uh, to our series in 1 Timothy. <clears throat> and after having fought and wrestled our way through some of the very hardest parts of the Bible that Jesus has to say to us, as a local church family through the Apostle Paul, this morning we come to the three verses that form the very heart of the letter. we which none of what we've read so far makes sense and would leave us feeling perhaps quite a bit heavy. Because we've looked at a lot of heavy things in 1 Timothy. As Paul writes to his young protege, how it is he is to be established, how it is he is to establish and grow and lead this local church in Ephesus if he has any chance of surviving in the world. And we've looked at uh, what we are to defend the church from in chapter 1, that being false teaching, And anything that stands against the sound doctrine of God, which is the simple gospel of the trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, anything that stands against that simple understanding of the gospel is to be called out, thrown out, done away with. Timothy is charged to do that. We as elders are charged to do that. We've looked at what it means to really pray for our national leaders in chapter 2, hard as that may be, as awful as they may be, so that our nations may be kept at peace in order for the gospel to thrive. As we then looked at God's plan for his church in our roles as men and women, as men take up the right burden of the teaching and leadership of the mixed gathering of God's church, as the women teach and lead in their roles under the elders in the creation order designed by God himself in his perfection in the Garden of Eden for the protection of his family. Which brings us to last week where chapter 3 we looked at exactly what this leadership of elders and deacons looks like with the weight of godliness being the primary concern of any man who would choose to lead as a teaching elder or any man or woman who would seek to serve the elders by way of being deacons. Both elders and deacons being held to, to high accounts of godliness publicly under the scrutiny of the local church within their congregation standing on the grace of the Lord Jesus. And if we stop the book there, we'd very much be in our rights to panic, or at least groan. These are really hard things to do. Some of these things we've been asked to do as a church over these weeks have been very countercultural, if not entirely counterintuitive, to our fallen minds. They are hard things to do, they're hard things to want to do, and they are hard things to keep doing. We can feel beaten up, in fact, always trying to to reach into ourselves to achieve these seemingly impossible things that Jesus wants us to do for his church. It feels exhausting. It can do. And that panic and groaning and exhaustion would all be true and would all be merited if it weren't for verses 14 to 16 of chapter 3. We've been in these verses quite a lot already, they've been mentioned in some detail, I think in every single sermon um, so far, but I want to spend a little bit more time in them today as we see that these verses not only make sense of why we are encouraged to do these seemingly hard things up until this point, but because they provide the beautiful encouragement of how it is possible that we can do them, and why we would want to do them, as we look at indeed who it is that makes it possible that we can keep going in them. And that is because these verses remind us of what this letter is written for. It is written to Timothy. It is written for us today to remind the local church of exactly who we are. And if we don't have a very good understanding of who we are, then we're not going to understand why we are tasked to do the things we are tasked to do, let alone want to do them for everything we've looked at so far, everything that follows on over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas in the second half of this letter, only makes sense and only becomes something we want to do as Christians when we realise that we are not merely a body of disparate people trying to stick together in the world, but that we are, in fact, nothing less than the household of God himself, the church of the living God himself, the pillar and buttress of God's truth itself all built on the mystery of godliness we are to proclaim, who is the example we are to follow, the foundation we are to be built on, and the means by which we are to do all of these impossible things, which is verse 16, none other than Jesus Christ himself. And those four truths change everything about how we view this letter, as I hope it changes everything about how we view ourselves, the the local church, and why it is that we're here at all. And we're simply going to take these four truths one by one this morning as we sit in the reality of who we are as a local church and, and how knowing these four truths encourages us in our striving to be more like Jesus in the world, infuses us in that striving, re- reminding us of the extreme privilege that we bear in any way being a part of this church. Our first point, we desire to do these things in this letter because we are the household of God. Just read with me again, verses 14 and 15 that Naomi read for us. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, (coughs) the pillar and buttress of the truth. I'm writing these uh, difficult but glorious things to you, Timothy, says Paul, because you are not just any body of people on the earth, not because you are just some small, unimportant group of believers on the edge of a monstrous city. No, because first and foremost, you are God's own household. We actually saw household mentioned didn't we? Last week's passage in chapter three, where us as elders and deacons are tasked to manage our own households well in order to be seen as being appropriate for ministry. And, and that makes sense. It makes sense that we have a well-run personal household if we are to be looking after the running of God's household. And that in a, in a nutshell is exactly what Paul means by household. We are God's family, living as it were under one roof with him as our father. And if you think about that for a moment, that that is an astonishing thing to say. We often call ourselves a part of God's family. It kind of trips off our tongues. But but do we really have any real idea of what that truth actually means for us? Do we really believe that reality? Because it is an incredible reality. I'm reading the uh, next book in the Chronicles of Narnia with Toby, The Horse and His Boy. We're going through the whole series together. I'm loving it. And uh, The Horse and His Boy is one of my favourites. It describes... At the golden age of Narnia, when Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are the reigning kings and queens of Narnia, and they're sitting on the thrones of Care Paravel, and the, and the main character is a little impoverished orphan called Shasta, and he's running away from his stepfather, who hates him, who wants to sell him to a slave driver, and, and the whole book is about him trying to get to Narnia and the free north, the, the land of Aslan and Hope, and by the end of the book, you realise that Shasta's whole journey has been about where it becomes clear that, and Toby doesn't know this yet, don't tell him, uh, that this boy... It is the long-lost son of a king, King Loon. He—he he is a prince of the realm. And and suddenly he's found his new family. That the king is his father. His prince um, is his uh, his brother is a prince, and they both welcome him with open arms. You you were lost, but you've now been found, and you're now back in your rightful place. They so say to him. His fortunes change overnight and forever, from being alone and a slave to being part of the royal family. Now, we we love these rags-to-riches stories at the best of times, but we really should as Christians because it actually resonates with our family history, with us as God's people on earth, more than we know. We are part of a greater family. I I, I wake up to the truth of the gospel, and suddenly I'm a prince of the realm. It's an incredible... The the difference between us and Shastra and Narnia, of course, that we're not living in any fiction, this isn't wild fantasy, it's true. We are part of the family of God. The God of the universe, the God of Genesis, the creator God, the king of the earth, the king of heaven, with our own keys, if you will, to be able to access the heart of the throne room of heaven itself. That is a breathtaking reality. And it gets better than that. For in no way is this language of this idea of being God's household new to the Ephesians. Turn back, if you can, to the book of Ephesians. There's another letter written by Paul to this very same church that Paul is writing to here in 1 Timothy. Go to page uh, 976, I think it is, in your Black Church Bibles. In chapter 2, (coughs) 976, we uh, see this same word again. The household of God. But here in this letter, the theme is spun out even further. Verse 19 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. So then, says Paul, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see where this passage ends up? We're not just a part of God's family that I get to be adopted by uh, and and in, but I don't get to see much of God, even though I have access to his house. He's not actually that often. He lives in his second house down the road, and he might pop in every now and again when he wants to check up on me like a well-meaning but absent father. No, Ephesians 2 verse 21, being joined together as as God's family members, we grow up into a holy temple in the Lord. What is the temple? The place where God alone dwells. You see, where there are Christians gathered together, their God is living in them, with them, among them, in us, with us, among us. That's what being God's household means. Not not the bricks and mortar of this building, us. Have you considered that that is what is happening when we commune together on a Sunday morning and in our growth groups midweek? When that happens, God is there. He's active, present, invested. Now, have that temple idea of household in your head. Go back to 1 Timothy. And and now remember the immediate context of the letter of 1 Timothy to the Ephesian church. What is at the center of the city of Ephesus? We looked at this a few weeks ago. What is this tiny church sitting literally in the shadow of? It is a temple. And whose temple is it? Well, if you remember from a few weeks ago, it's the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. It's the same God. And this temple was Massive! It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was also known as the house of the god Artemis. Can you see? Paul is contrasting between who this tiny church are against what is most dominant in their culture, and Paul is saying, no, 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 you, Ephesian church, are the household of God, not the people who go to the household of Artemis. As impressive as they might be, as impressive as that temple may look, you are the temple of the real God. Indeed, point two, Which brings us to the second truth Jesus wants Paul, uh, through his local church, to to tell us. You are the household, the temple, the church of the living God. Now, can you see, why is it important that Paul adds that living God bit to this, the second truth? The the title living God is very unusual for Paul. He doesn't actually use it that often. Um, He doesn't need to add it here either. We sort of know, the readers know which God Paul is talking about. The Ephesians and Timothy know which God Paul is talking about. There, there is only one God, and he's the only one who's alive. But, but I think Paul adds it here because he wants to make the very point about God's household being like a temple, that you small local church in Ephesus, in Collington, you, you're not like other temples. You're, you're, you're not like the other households, if you like. You're, you're not like the golf club, if you will, or the local book group, or the financial district in the city of Edinburgh with, with all its wealth and shiny buildings. You're, you're not like the parliament in Holyrood, built to make government look impressive and, and took millions and millions and millions of pounds. Yeah, those are all the temples to the spirits of our age. You're, you're better than the Shard in London and, and, and their Apple headquarters in California with their opulence and their hugeness and fawning disciples from all over the world. And that is because they are temples to dead gods, fake gods, False philosophies. Whenever Paul uses the term "living God," he nearly always uses it in contrast to false gods and idols. We see that in two Corinthians six, one Thessalonians one. You can have a look at those later. It's the same here. Diana, Artemis, she's dead. She, she's a fake god. The, the temple looks impressive, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. In Acts nineteen verse twenty-seven, Luke quotes the local silversmiths who've had their lost, lost their trades. If you remember, to Paul's teaching. Saying this, that the Christians have brought our trade into disrepute, but also that of the great temple of the great goddess Artemis, that she may be counted as nothing and that she may be even disposed by her magnificence. She whom all of Asia and the world worship, they said. is that incredible? Acts 19 verse 27. This temple is the centre of worship for the known local world. A lot of people visit it. It's very impressive. It's a huge pool, But you, tiny, seeming insignificant church that has to live in its shadow, feeling its size and power over you, know you are the temple, the gathering, the household, the church of the living God. And because of that, because you are the temple-like church of the living God, that means you have a far more important job than merely being a static member of God's family in the place where he resides, just waiting for eternity to happen. Sort of sucking in your thumbs. 4.3 bring us to our third truth as to who we are as the living god's local church that now means you have a job to do and much like the temple of artemis and diana uh, it was there to scream out how important she was even though she's dead you are to do the same for me says god you are to shout out proudly and boldly to the rest of the world who i am as thirdly you are the pillar and buttress of this living god's truth And we totally understand this image, don't we, the importance of the pillar in the erection of all buildings. Without the pillar, you would have no building. No more so are we aware of this than here at Redeem, where our whole church building is dominated by a pillar. It's right there. It's in the middle of the room, so dominant that you guys haven't actually worked out who's in church this morning. Neither have you. As one of you said a few months back, it's a nice surprise when we all break for coffee to actually see who's on the other side of the room. And it's very true. It's just there. I mean, it's dominant. We can't, we can't get away from it. And, and we enjoy grumbling about it. It's a lot of our conversation time is taken up with it. And it might well be cut down to size, perhaps, as and when we begin to change the space a little bit safely. But however much we grumble about the pillar... It is incredibly important. We should be incredibly grateful for it because without it, we don't have a building. We don't have a place to meet. It keeps everything up. It keeps everything safe. Well, says Jesus to Paul, that is what you are, local church family of the living God. You are a pillar. And what are you holding up? You're holding up God's truth the gospel, in other words. You're keeping it safe. That's what the other word in this picture means, buttress. The, the buttresses were the parts of a big building. Those of you um, um, who have had the privilege of going to the Notre Dame before it was burned down and, and will do again. they the huge running buttresses that ramp up from the Seine to, to hold this huge building in place. That's what you are, church. You're, you're keeping God's truth safe and intact. It's a brilliant picture. But you're not just keeping God's truth safe and intact, but as a pillar, you also announce God's truth to the world. That's what pillars also do, don't they? Much like the pillar in St. Andrew's Square, uh, in the city, the Melville Monument, the whole reason for that pillar is to hold up a statue of a man, Henry Dundas, the first Viscount of somewhere, So, someone that a lot of us probably have never really known of or or know much about. But you're meant to really notice it, and, and you do, it's huge. Well, that's what you're doing, says Jesus. You're the pillar on top of which sits the gospel. You're sort of all stretching out to hold it up as fast as possible, as high as possible. You're holding up public, proud, for all to see and notice. But what is the surprise in this verse? We've mentioned this before. The surprise is, I think, that we expect these verses to say, the truth is the pillar and buttress of the church. If you were to put all those words into a sentence, that's the one that you'd probably come up with as a Christian, isn't it? in that it is the truth which keeps us up and safe and intact. And actually, that's not wrong. If we go back to our reading in Ephesians, probably worth flicking back to that, we actually see that very idea made clear by Paul here again in Ephesians 2.19. I'm going to read those verses again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The gospel truth, as as handed down by the apostles and the prophets, all the way through history, is our foundation. Literally, Christ is our cornerstone, the one on which we are built and on whom we depend. In other words, without God's truth, we can't be kept together. The truth does hold us up and keep us safe and intact. Indeed, says Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, if we digress from the truth, then we will fall apart. So what is Paul saying in 1 Timothy? Why is it the other way around here? The church is the pillar and butcher of the truth. Well, he's not saying the church is the mother of all truth or the judge of truth or the initiator of truth or the founder of truth or the manufacturer of truth. And that's really important because that idea of what the church is is false teaching. Some people throughout history uh, very recently in our context within the established church in the West, have used these verses to claim that the church is on the same level as the Bible. And and therefore, we as the church are allowed to make different truth claims about the Bible and what it really says, because we are the final arbiters of what biblical truth is. And once you get into that position, well, the Bible suddenly can become anything we like. We can make the Bible say whatever we like, because I and the elders interpret Scripture, and I say what Scripture is really saying. And and rather than the other way around. And when that happens, well, we're on a very slippery slope, aren't we? Truth is whatever we want it to be. The gospel is whatever we want it to be. And it will invariably be whatever we find easiest and most comfortable with the world around us. It just always will be. Saying only the things that other people want us to say if we are the foundation of truth. Well, it can't be what Paul is getting at here. We know it isn't. No, the church is not the final arbiter of God's truth he is. And God's truth does create the foundations of who we are as a faithful church family of the living God, as Ephesians reminding us. But what Paul is getting at here, is that God's truth has been given to the church to defend and protect and uphold. We haven't produced it. It's come from beyond us. It's come from outside us. Because we are God's family, sons and daughters of the King, because we are the church and the temple of the living God, the place where he dwells intimately with us, because we are so privileged as heirs of the promise of God, so as children of the realm of God's new kingdom, we are given the family jewels, if you like. the the treasure of his truth. Like, Like any inheritance, we have to keep it safe, we have to keep it intact, we have to pass it on to the next generation, and especially concerning the gospel, to advertise it to everyone around us. Look how wealthy my father is. And if that is true, then everything we've looked at so far in 1 Timothy makes sense, doesn't it? It is an astonishing privilege that we have been handed the truth of the living God, as people in whom he dwells by his spirit, it makes perfect sense at this point in this letter that we would then call out and eliminate false teaching in the church, chapter 1, because that is a threat to the precious inheritance of the truth of the living God. Why would we not do that? It makes sense that we would then pray for our leaders in chapter 2, no matter how awful they are, as we seek our nations to be places where this precious truth can be upheld and defended and advertised publicly. It makes sense that we take so very seriously the way the living God tells us to lead his church family on earth through our created roles as men and women and through our godliness, chapter 3, for for that is how God ordained his truth to be taught and protected. Everything now makes sense. If we are God's family, His, his temple, the living church, whose mission and privilege it is to be the protector and upholder of his truth in the world, the gospel's pillar and buttress. And we know that this truth is not something we manufacture or judge, don't we? Or, or that we rule over, that I sort of issue edicts on. Because, what comes, because of what comes next in verse 15, in 16, that the pinnacle and the heart of everything that Paul has said so far about the local church, for who has the final say in this passage? What is this local church family of the living God centered around? What seems to be the center of the truth we confess? Who is it? as we dedicate Ethan and Amelia this morning, that is going to keep the Kirby family intact, such that Andrew and Naomi are going to continue being pillars and buttresses of God's gospel truth in their own household, holding on to the promises that they've made this morning. Well, it's not Andrew and Naomi themselves. It's not the church itself. We are not to be the centre of our own little communities, our own little worlds sort of all curved in on ourselves looking at us our own godliness, trying to work it out for ourselves in all of this. Rather, the centre and the heart of the church, the centre and the heart of every Christian family unit, every Christian individual that makes up the wider church family unit, the, the preoccupation of all of us seems to be this mystery of godliness in verse 16 the mystery at the heart of the true godly church family, the the mystery at the heart of this letter, the the mystery of how it is we can ever possibly do the things and behave in the ways and defend the truths and withstand the spirits of our age that are described in this letter. The mystery, verse 16, which is found in none other than a description of someone who can be none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For that is what verse 16 is. It's a song... It's an anthem, if you like, for the church, and that anthem only fits one person, and that is Jesus. And because of that, this anthem, which anchors these verses in the entire letter, also brings us back to our opening question this morning, which is, how is it we can grow a desire for doing these impossible things in this letter? And more importantly, how can we do them at all? For we are challenged and charged in this letter in very difficult ways. There is a standard of godliness for an elder, which, if I'm honest, I don't never reach. There is an acceptance of our roles as men and women, which, if we're honest, we find truly uncomfortable. There's a defense of the gospel against the pressures from within and without the church that, if we're honest, seem just too hard to fight. And that's kind of the point. We're not perfect. We are all works in progress. We are not Jesus. Heaven forbid that I should claim to be Jesus to this church but we are princes and princesses of the heavenly realm. And that is so helpful for all of us who fail in all these areas in church life and personal godliness, because it means that in our position as sons and daughters of God's living household, we do hit these notes of church family godliness, not alone and and not perfectly. We can't do that. All we can do is throw ourselves on the one who did do them perfectly for us, who is the perfect representation of godliness the one who got us into this family in the first place, that is Jesus. We want to and can do all these things in this letter because we are the household and the family of God himself, the church and temple of the living God himself, the pillar and buttress of his truth himself. That's who we are. We're already saved and safe into God's kingdom. But not because we are good enough and can do all these things in our own strength, but because, point four, of the mystery of godliness, Jesus Christ himself. Just read this last verse with me, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That is our anthem. Who do we confess? Not ourselves, Jesus. Who is the heart of this local church family of God? Not us, Jesus. Now, the big question here is, why does Paul write it in this way? He could have said, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our godliness, Jesus. And we'd have all gone, hallelujah. But he doesn't. He waxes lyrical, literally, about the main six things in chronological order that seem to be the highlights of Jesus' life and work. And that's incredibly helpful for us, actually, for there is more going on here than merely Christ has done all this perfectly for you. What we see here is also an example of what the living church is to follow. But can you see, if we pick apart these things concerning Jesus, that he was manifested in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the Spirit, that he was seen by angels, that he was proclaimed among the nations, that he was believed in the world, and that he was taken up into glory, what are all those things? What do they all have in common? Well, all those things are public things, All these attributes and highlights of Jesus' life and work show that he was the perfect pillar and buttress of God's truth because he was publicly outward-facing, constantly screaming of who he was and pointing people towards the Father. Can you see? Everything in this anthem is public, loud. Jesus made himself known in flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas in just a few weeks' time. How much closer could we get to God? How much more could God have made himself known than that? He was... Then vindicated publicly in his ministry by God himself, by the Spirit. Do you remember when the Spirit descended on Jesus when he was baptized by John, saying out loud, for everyone to hear, this is my Son with whom I am well, please listen to him. It's a public outcry by God, a plea for him to be able to point people to Jesus. Ultimately, however, Jesus was vindicated when he rose again from the dead, wasn't he? Publicly vindicated, seen by 500 people after his death, proving his claims of his godness that they were true. Jesus was right. And he ascends into heaven, his rightful place as king, vindicated then too, as he was seen by angels in the heavenly realms. This is where Jesus now physically resides at that moment, not just public on earth, but now made public in heaven. And then proclaimed among the nations, Jesus is now globally public, as his disciples go into all the earth and tell people of who he is and what he has done for them, which in turn produces a global response, as he is now believed on in the entire world. Publicly believed and personally known by millions across the globe, when Jesus is then finally taken up into glory. That last one's a bit more difficult. It seems to disrupt the timeline as Jesus being taken up into glory maybe should be in the middle of this anthem. But I think what is going on here is Jesus finally being taken up into glory for the last time with all of these billions of believers in his wake. When he comes back on the final day of the Lord, the final act of of publicity that Jesus has to undertake, there's only one more bit of publicity he needs to do, and that is to to return, as Jesus brings to a close once and for all his public ministry in this earth. You see? What was Jesus? He was outrageously, outward-facingly public. And that is what we are meant to be as God's family. His household, his church, his temple, his pillar, outward-facingly public, not pointing to ourselves, not not pointing the whole world, uh, but pointing the whole world to Jesus, not to us, to his truth and his gospel, making him known in the world, being that pillar and buttress of the truth, boldly advertising everything that Jesus did, like Jesus himself did. And this is especially brilliant of Paul when we consider the context of 1 Timothy. For why does Paul call this Jesus and his godliness and his publicity a mystery? Well, I'm convinced that this is because of what Timothy is having to confront in the church from chapter one. What does chapter one warn us about? False teachers. And what are these false teachers teaching? Chapter one, verse four myths, genealogies, and spiritual speculation. You see? You could almost case their theology in oh, it's such a mystery. You can imagine these false teachers saying that. Who knows what God is really like? Such a mystery. I know, but it's very mysterious. It's a it's a deeper level of understanding that you've been taught here. Follow my teaching, and 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 you'll reach a higher level of understanding. the the true mystery of godliness and the gospel and of truth, which only a few of us have access to. Wink, wink, fingers on lips. You, you can see that if you, if you want to be a real Christian, what well, do you need to unearth hidden and unseen truths that not many people get? You have to really spiritually dig there. Myth, legend, spiritual speculation. Can you see? And, and Paul, being Paul, blows this out of the water. And he says, I'll show you the mystery of godliness, chaps. It's public Jesus. It's, it's simply Jesus. That's your mystery. It, there it is. He, he's, he's right there, like, like, like a whacking great pillar in the middle of a room. That, that, that's him. Yeah. For all to see, in heaven and on earth, locally and across the globe, look at Paul's verbs concerning Jesus in his anthem, manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed. There is no mystery in that sense. There's nothing to hide. Jesus has nothing to hide. There's no higher level of understanding, no hidden meaning, no spiritual, deeper meaning. It's Jesus, that's, that's who it is, that's all it is, who revealed himself publicly in the flesh and in the spirit to everyone. No, the gospel is not elitist for the spiritually deep and discerning and the enlightened. It's publicly held up to everyone the world over, every single man, woman, and child. Chapter 2, verse 4 this Jesus who desires all peoples to be saved. And verse 6, who gave his life as a ransom for all peoples. The question for us, the Redeemer, is are we going to be like that Jesus? Are we going to example his public godliness, his public ministry? Are we in this church family, redeemed as we are by that very public ministry of Jesus himself, going to unashamedly hold out this gospel for the sake of the lost in this community for all who need to hear it? Are we as a church willing to sing this anthem? Anthems are songs that are publicly implanted proudly, loudly sung at and in front of others with fervor and pride, clutching our chests and beating our breasts and proudly boasting in our, nation, in our nation's team. And that's what this song is in verse 16, our anthem. The words of which are Jesus, boasting in Jesus. Are we bragging about Jesus? Are we a church that is singing this anthem? Or are we all singing from the same hymn sheets? Are you, Andrew and Naomi, singing this anthem every single day with Ethan and Amelia, teaching them the words so they don't forget them when they grow up? For they will be taught so many different anthems. They will have their eyes drawn to so many different temples. They will be enticed by so many different households, as will all of us at Redeemer. But not if they, not if we as a church, the living God's family, know this anthem by heart. Are we going to be a public Jesus anthem-singing church? Or are we going to be an insular church? Indeed, are we going to be a church that is perhaps likely to water down this anthem a little bit and make it a bit less, you know, in your face? Along the lines of, well, great indeed is the mystery of godliness who was discussed quietly amongst believers, hidden behind closed doors, loved in private, unspoken in the world, believed in by a few local people who were already pretty comfortable with the church, that's much more palatable. It's also absurd because that's not who we are. That's not what God is. What we are is God's household, God's church, his pillar and buttress of the truth. We can't not sing this anthem or follow this Jesus or proclaim him publicly. That is who we are or invite people to church. It's not in our DNA. It shouldn't be to do anything else. And that thought brings us on the home straight, back to where we started, back to the other reason Paul anchors this letter in this anthem. For as a church, we're going to find reading these heights of godliness hard. It is so difficult to chat to our friends about Jesus, it is painfully hard. As a church, we're going to find reading all this difficult. Indeed, it is a mystery how we could ever live up to the heights rightly demanded of prince and princesses of the realm of God's heavenly kingdom. It is a mystery why wretched, fallen, acrimonious grumblers like you and me could ever be given the keys to the throne room of the living God himself. That is a mystery. It is a mystery how fallen men like me who make mistakes and are rule-breakers by nature can be allowed to lead and teach God's household. It's a mystery because none of us are good enough. Not one of us, certainly not me. So, how can we enjoy being in this church family, doing these impossible things in this letter, striving to do countercultural things for the gospel, even when they're hard, even when they don't seem to make sense? Well, we can because Jesus is the answer to that mystery. He is our godliness, He is our perfection, and us being able to do anything remotely appropriate for being a part of and looking after God's household is only because of Jesus. The song is about Him, not us. He manifested in the flesh in grace and truth at Christmas, not me, not you. He was vindicated by the Spirit as his baptism, his death and resurrection because he died the perfect death. Not me, not you. I couldn't do that. God told the world to listen to him, not me. It was him who was seen by angels in heaven as being the only pure human to be able to have access to God's throne room. He was proclaimed as a savior in the world, not me. He was believed in for salvation, not you. He was and will be taken up into glory with him breaking us out of our death shrouds on the last day, not me, not you. We can be God's household, this local church of the living God, this pillar and brush of the truth, because we are not perfect. We are not Jesus, but because Jesus is perfect, and he is Jesus, and he is good enough for us. Because he was sufficiently public enough that the Spirit came after us and transformed us from the people who were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live, but where we are now alive with Christ, given the right to become children of God. Prince and princesses of the realm, the family and temple of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Andronaemi, and uh, you want to look to Jesus as you get through your kids and your kids through life intact. This is your anthem. You look to Jesus, you trust in him, you do what he says. Publicly and loudly, you live out your faith in front of Ethan and Amelia. For all of us, let us not see this letter as a slog, but as a letter of incredible joy, of unimaginable privilege, one in which we realise we can be the church that God intends us to be, and as this extraordinary people that he's made us into, as redeemed men and women in God's family, we can be a church that is striving for godliness, eager for the gospel, willing to proclaim, battling to defend, unashamed to preach as we depend on Jesus, the mystery of our godliness our perfect righteousness, our hope in life and death. And as we follow his public example for the building of this local church, as we sing his anthem together. Well, let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for everything that he is. Thank you for everything that he had done. Thank you for everything that he was. Thank you that he is the, 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 the perfect human, the one who made himself known in flesh. Thank you that we have the opportunity this Christmas to really talk to people about the wonder of the incarnation, uh, incarnation, how how important and how powerful and how glorious it is that Jesus made himself known. Thank you for his publicity. Thank you for his loudness. Thank you for him being the pillar and buttress of God's truth as God himself in human form, as he points everyone to himself, as he as he sends his, his men, and women out into the nations to speak of him. Heavenly Father, I pray so very much that we would be a church that is captured by this anthem, encouraged and enthused by it, and willing to speak to everyone we know about Jesus, and that we'd be willing to speak to our own hearts, to each other, as we encourage each other in the Lord. Father God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that as we go through this letter, we realize that we are not called to be perfect. We are not called to be Jesus. We are called to be people who, who are resting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he dies the death that we couldn't die, and as he lives the life that we couldn't live, and as he brings us, his many sons and daughters, into glory in his wake. Heavenly Father, I pray that we will be a church that is truly dependent on grace and a church that is unafraid to be public and striving hard for the gospel, and, and dealing with sin because we can, because we are the household of God, and, and indwelt by the Spirit that helps us and gets us into eternity. Father, may this be real joy to our hearts this morning. May we really enjoy speaking to our friends, our neighbours about Jesus. May we enjoy bringing them to things over Christmas as we share with them the wonder of the Lord Jesus. And may we be struck ourselves by how great you are as you died for us in your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.